Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 23rd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We had um. But well, we had a trying week in some respects here at Christagenia. We had DDoS attacks, denial of service attacks, not against Christagenia.org, but against IsraelElect.com on January 19th and January 21st, both of them at about 4 a.m., that they were um, pretty serious denial of service attacks in that there were hundreds of file servers or IP numbers around the internet that were involved. And and um, at the peak of the DDoS attack on the 21st, there were about 1.2 million hits on IsraelElect.com. Neither of the DDoS attacks were successful in bringing down our server, but which to, to, I'm sure that's to the chagrin of the Jew bastards that tried it. We, um, after the attack on the 19th was successfully warded off, we switched our DNS services to Cloudflare, where um, we're protected against things such as that. With that, we learned a few other things, and we are able to. Um, take some preventative message, preventative measures, I'm sorry. We blocked traffic to all Christagenia websites for about 140, 150 countries that have non-white populations, China and, and, and all of Asia and most of South America and most of Africa are now blocked from accessing Christogeny.org at all, or Israelelect.com. Um, all of the Middle Eastern countries are blocked. The hellhole in Palestine is blocked. I wish I could block New York, but I can't. I'm sorry. The um, traffic has not dropped to the website and, and that's because non-white countries only only um, account for about 5% of our traffic, but probably most of the hackers and, and the um, denial of service attacks. Most of the servers involved in the denial of service attacks seem to be from Asia and Venezuela stood out. So Doing that, we also found um, something that we suspected for the last several months, and that is that Google and, and Google's website traffic measuring services, Google Analytics, and companies that rely on that, such as Alexa.com, are drastically under-reporting Christogenia visitor traffic, which hurts us in search engine rankings and things like that. Maybe not for Christian identity-related topics, but certainly for um, topics that people in the mainstream may search on and, and find websites like Christogenia. 
So, so we're uh, we're going to write about that on a forum post, hopefully in the near future. On a lighter note, we're experimenting with T-shirts, advertising Christagenia.org, and and um, if you're interested in a Christagenia T-shirt, the information is on the front page of Christagenia.com. If anyone wants, they could visit that website, click on the links, and get themselves a T-shirt and help advertise our cause. I'm actually wearing one now. Um, I, I don't, we, we don't make any money at all on a venture. We don't have any affiliation or business partnership with the company that makes the shirts. And we're going to be looking around for um, less expensive and easier to use vendors. But I thought it would, might be fun for, for people to be able to obtain one and, and help advertise our common cause. With that, we will begin with the, the epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians part 17, and it's subtitled Resurrecting Adam, or actually the entire Adamic race. We're not going to get through all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this week, and, and this is quite an extensive topic And the, the, the he, well, well, the part I'm looking forward to is actually going to be next week and the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Among the major points of discussion over the first six chapters of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians was the division among the members of the assembly because apparently many individuals were opting to follow different personalities choosing favorite apostles rather than committing themselves to following Christ. Another point of discussion was the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the action which the assembly is required to take in such instances in order to preserve its own integrity. And, and um, sadly, among Christians today, we see that no matter, because people gravitate towards following personalities rather than Christ, no matter what they do or say, they seem to be able to get away with it. And that's true in mainstream Judeo-Christianity as well. In regard to this action which should be taken against sinners, fornicators, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul illustrated how Christians should judge among themselves according to the judgment of God, rather than turning to worldly courts and the judgment of men. Then, for eight more chapters of this epistle, Paul answered the questions posed to him in a letter by members of the assembly for which he had written this epistle as a response. Therefore, Paul discussed things such as marriage and virginity in an age of persecution, Christian survival in a world of pagan idolatry. He answered questions concerning the conduct of his own ministry in Christ. 
And then he offered a lengthy discussion on general Christian deportment. In that last discussion, Paul spoke of how Christians should behave towards one another in their assemblies, how they should love and care for and esteem one another even above themselves and about the various gifts which God grants to men and how those gifts should be dispensed, whether they be spiritual gifts or carnal gifts. Now, beginning the closing of his epistle, Paul summarizes the purpose of the gospel and its ultimate promise, which is a resurrection from the dead for all of the children of Adam. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I explain to you, brethren, the good message which I have announced to you, or the gospel, good message, and which you have received, and in which you have been established. Paul considers these Corinthian Christians already established in the gospel in spite of all their faults, and through which you are preserved. If you hold fast to each statement I have announced to you, unless outside you have believed without purpose. Salvation is manyfold. Salvation in Scripture is actually threefold. First, there is national salvation, the preservation of the nation as a whole, and, and, and it's continuing under the auspices of God, which we see that the ancient Israelites failed to do. They failed because they accepted sinners and fell into sin themselves, that the nation was dispersed, ultimately to become many nations. So even in the sin of man, God can work good. The second type of salvation is the resurrection unto eternal life, which is promised to each and every Adamic man, as we shall see later in his chapter. But quite often, when the apostles talk about salvation, they mean salvation in this world, individual salvation in this world. And Christians have a promise that when they love God and keep his commandments, that they are going to be preserved in this world. And if they break the commandments of God, and flaunt God or forsake God, they're going to suffer fiery trials in this world. Paul said quite often that he turned sinners and blasphemers over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit will be saved in the day of Christ. And that's illustrated in his epistles to Timothy, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and elsewhere in his writing. That idea is illustrated in one way or another. So there's three types of salvation in Scripture, and we shouldn't get them confused, because the promise of eternal life transcends the mistakes we make in this world. 
There's a word here, parolambano, which is translated simply to receive, the good message which I have announced to you and which you have received in verse 1. And that word really has a stronger meaning than simply to receive. And among other things in various contexts, Paralambano was used in a stronger sense to signify something received from another as an inheritance. There's a Greek phrase here in verse 2. Ektos I may. I may, not being related to the English words, I may, but I meaning if, and may meaning not, being a negative particle. For ectos I may, and we're going to talk about this at length, I pray it's not boring. Ectos I may, in the King James Version, is represented only by the word unless here in verse 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 5, the King James Version translated the same phrase only as except. Again, where the phrase appears in 1 Timothy 5.19, and we will discuss these passages shortly, the King James Version translates it only as but. The Greek word ektos means outside, out of, far from, outside of, free from, apart from. It's Strong's number 1623. As we often use the phrase outside of in English, in Greek the word ektos was also used in certain contexts to mean except. The word ektos by itself, without the I may in phrases describing something which is excluded from other things. However, even that use is an idiom which does not fully reflect the primary meaning of the word. This word ectos appears eight times in the New Testament. Among these, in the King James Version at Matthew 23, 26, it is the word for outside in the phrase that the outside of them may be clean. Christ telling the Pharisees to clean the inside of the cup, that the outside of them may be clean. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it is without or outside of, where the King James has in the statement, Every sin that man doeth is without the body, meaning outside of the body. In 2 Corinthians 12.2, the word ectos is out in the phrase whether out of the body, meaning outside of the body. Paul speaking about a spiritual experience which he um, interpreted as his spirit leaving his body. In two other occurrences of the word, in Acts 26.22 and in 1 Corinthians 15.27, the word used by itself means except, signifying something which is outside of or apart from something else. And that's fine because the word by itself can mean except 
or unless. The last three occurrences of this word, ectos, are all left untranslated by the King James Version because, apparently, on each occasion, the word ectos is followed by another phrase, I may, if not, unless, or except. These are found in 1 Corinthians 14.5, where the phrase ectos I may is translated in the King James Version as except. Here in 1 Corinthians 15.2, where it is unless, and in 1 Timothy 5.19, where it only has but. However, we must reject the concept that ectos should be ignored or untranslated where it appears along with the phrase, I may. And this might seem trite, it might seem trivial, but actually it's quite important. We must reject this concept for several reasons. First, the phrase, I may, appears in Paul's epistles on 27 other occasions without the word ectos. And on those 27 occasions in the Christogenian New Testament, it is translated as unless, or if not, which is the most literal translation, or except. On these 27 occasions, adding the word ectos to the phrase I may, without adding to its meaning, would be absolutely superfluous. The phrase I may doesn't need that word ectos to mean except or unless. I may means except or unless, all by itself. In his Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer defends the King James Version's treatment of this phrase by citing only two rather weak examples from an obscure satirist of the late 2nd century A.D., If the context surrounding the phrase ectos I may on all three occasions where it appears in the epistles of Paul is clarified and enhanced if the word ectos is translated separately rather than being ignored as the King James Version ignores it, then we must translate the word. So I'll give this Christogenian New Testament translations of those three verses where the King James Version leaves the word ectos untranslated. 1 Timothy 5.19, an accusation against an elder you must not receive publicly except by two or three witnesses. Of course, one may hear an accusation privately and take note of it and leave it on the back burner until there are further witnesses. And if further witnesses never show up, the accusation has to be forgotten. Only once two or three witnesses, only once there are two or three witnesses of a crime, should an accusation be brought to light. Paul speaking to Timothy as a bishop of a Christian assembly. Once there are two or three witnesses of a crime, the accusation should be brought to light. And in this context, in 1 Timothy 
5.19, the Christogenia New Testament interprets the word ectos to mean publicly or outside. In that phrase, ectos I may, you must not receive publicly except by two or three witnesses. Ectos is publicly, and it could be translated more literally as outside, and I may is except, because by itself, I may means except. The King James translation ignored the word ectos. 1 Corinthians 14.5 Indeed, greater is he interpreting prophecies than he speaking language, unless publicly he would explain what was said. Here Paul is telling us that speaking in tongues is not really useful unless outside, openly, publicly, the words spoken in the tongue can be translated by the speaker, can be explained. The King James Version again ignores that word ectos. In 1 Corinthians 15, 2, here in this very passage, and through which you are preserved, if you hold fast to each statement I have announced to you, unless outside you have believed without purpose. What's Paul saying? Since the faith is only for the children of Israel, none of the children of Israel can believe without purpose. Not possible, because all Israel All Israel will be saved. But being outside of that group, one's belief is vain. It's vanity. Why? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the preaching, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us, which are saved, it is the power of God. It's only for the children of Israel. It's not for the other races. Paul speaking to Israelites. As for this interpretation of Paul's use of the word ectos, here in 1 Corinthians 15.2, there are many similar uses of the Greek word exo, which is a synonym. Exo also means outside. One example is found in Mark 4.11. And there we read, And he said unto them, speaking of Christ, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, and that's the word exo, a synonym of ectos, all these things are done in parables. So even Christ used a kindred word in that same manner. As for Paul's understanding that there are people who are outside of the faith of Christ, we see Paul himself relate that in many places, in Colossians 4.5, in 1 Thessalonians 4.12, in 1 Timothy 3.7, and elsewhere, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which we have just quoted. 
Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, in reference to those outside, you walk in wisdom, buying the time. Likewise, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul said, Paul is seen praying that he should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, not concluding that they should repent, but instead concluding that the faith is not for all. The denominational so-called Christians of today refuse to accept such a conclusion, and they would rather twist Paul's words. I'm convinced that 1 Corinthians 15:2, Paul is telling people that unless outside, in other words, unless you're not an Israelite, because then your belief would be vain because the promises simply are not for you. These um, little innuendos in translation, when, well, when they are all corrected throughout the New Testament, the wealth in Shanghai one builds for himself from reading the scripture is drastically different than what the King James Version has to offer. Because the truth is drastically different than the universalist mindset that the King James translators were forced to have, thinking that the Israelites were Jews. For among you, I'm sorry, for you are among Verse 3, the first that I had transmitted to that which I had also received. Paul's telling the Corinthians that they were among the first people that he transmitted the gospel which he had received. The death of Herod Agrippa I is recorded in Acts chapter 12, took place in 44 A.D. Paul had, if we read the accounts in Acts, that's about when he went to Tarsus and Calicia, and he was preaching in Tarsus and Calicia while he was there, even though that's not described in the book of Acts itself. Paul had, from 44 AD, already preached Christianity abroad from around the time Herod Agrippa I died in Syria, and in Calicia, and in one long mission through Cyprus and Anatolia when he was accompanied by Barnabas. Paul's first recorded visit to Corinth is in Acts chapter 17. After he had again passed through much of Anatolia and had preached in Macedonia and even in Athens. Because the Roman proconsul Gallio is mentioned in conjunction with the year and a half that Paul spent in Corinth at this time, Acts 17. The date of this portion of his ministry can be rather accurately estimated to be around 51 and 52 AD. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 19, that this epistle was written from Ephesus during the three-year period that Paul stayed in Ephesus 
which is described in Acts chapter 19. So Paul's first visit to Corinth was relatively recent in comparison to, to the beginning of his ministry, which was possibly eight years before that. With this, it may become evident that Paul had inferred by his words that the Corinthians were perhaps among the first in Europe to whom he taught the gospel in any great detail since it is the first place in Europe that he had visited where it is recorded that he had spent such a significant amount of time. Paul spent 18 months there in Corinth. Paul proceeds by explaining some of what he had transmitted. And he starts by saying that Christ had been slain for our sins or errors in accordance with the writings. The entire context of the prophets of the Old Testament is that Christ would die, the coming Messiah would die for the sins of the children of Israel. Here Paul says that Christ had been slain for our sins. And it cannot be forgotten that in chapter 10 of this same epistle, Paul had identified the Corinthians as being descendants of the ancient Israelites who were with Moses in the Exodus. And Paul also, in that chapter, identified the pagan nations of Europe, those who were sacrificing to pagan idols. Paul identified them as Israel according to the flesh. In that chapter, Paul is explaining, in chapter 10 of this epistle, Paul is explaining many of the sins of the ancient children of Israel which Christ had died for. From Isaiah chapter 53, where we see a dialogue representing the words of the children of Israel, and it says in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As I've said, there are many nuances of Scripture which cannot be ignored, which prove the Christian identity interpretation of Scripture to be the only true interpretation. Paul said here that Christ died for our sins, meaning his and the Corinthians, our sins in accordance with the writings. And Paul could never have said that of anyone but the lost or put away Israelites. There is nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures where non-Israelites were ever under the law or where a Messiah was ever promised for the sin of non-Israelites. But Paul says Christ was slain for our sins according to the writing. 
As Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, although there certainly was sin before the law, sin was not imputed because there was no law. The Messiah died for those to whom sin was imputed. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, that the Messiah came to redeem those who were under the law. If you are outside of the law, sin is not imputed. The patriarchs from Adam to Moses were all Adamic men, ancestors of the Israelites themselves, no different from any Israelite. But they were outside of the law, so sin was not imputed. Verse 4, and that he had been buried, and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the writings. There are several Old Testament prophecies indicating the Messiah would overcome death, such as in Psalm 16, where it says, from verse 8, I have set Yahweh always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In the gospel, Christ himself attested the how that would occur. First, Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Later on in this very chapter, Paul himself quotes from Hosea chapter 13, where the word of Yahweh says, I will ransom them, plural, speaking of Israel, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues, O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. At the end of the story, in the Revelation, we see that hell and death, as well as all those not written into the book of life, all those who are outside of the faith, as Paul would call them, Hell and death go into the lake of fire. Verse 5. And then he appeared to Kephas. The word Kephas means stone in Hebrew. Paul used that as an affectionate term for Peter. And that he had appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. Note that Paul doesn't say eleven. Thereafter, he had appeared to more than 500 brethren at the same time, of whom the greater number remains until presently, but some have died. Paul is writing this epistle around 55 AD by my own chronology, which is found somewhere on Christogenia. That's about 23 years after the crucifixion. or I should say more positively, after the resurrection. The end of the gospel account in Matthew is brief and only mentions those who were at the tomb 
And then at one later meeting in Galilee between the risen Christ and the eleven remaining apostles. The Gospel of Mark, discounting the spurious portions of Mark 16, properly ends with the events describing the women at the tomb in the morning immediately following the resurrection. In Luke's Gospel, we see that Christ further appeared to some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then later to the eleven gathered together and those with them. Luke 24:33. In Jerusalem, just before his ascension, all of these are partial accounts recorded from limited eyewitness perspectives. The Apostle John records a few of the encounters which the apostles had with the, with the risen Christ over many days, something the other Gospels certainly do not record. And John says, now indeed, also, many other signs Yahshua did before his students, things which are not written in this book, talking at a period between the resurrection and the ascension. Therefore, Luke wrote in the book of Acts that to the apostles, Christ had presented himself alive after his suffering with many proofs. The opening, even though the closing to the Gospel of Luke is concise, the opening to the book of Acts very much agrees with the closing to the Gospel of John. With many proofs appearing to them over 40 days, meaning repeatedly until that first Christian Pentecost. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of Yahweh, it is quite plausible, therefore, that Paul means to tell us on at least one occasion where Christ had seen the eleven gathered together and those with them, as Luke has it in his gospel that those who were with the apostles could have numbered as many as 500 people. Therefore, where Paul speaks of these 500 brethren, he may be referring to any one of what may have possibly, according to the Gospel of John, what may have possibly been many such events leading up to that first Christian Pentecost. A lot of people like to point to this passage in Paul's epistle, look at the word 12, and say, aha, we've got you. Paul's reference to the 12 is not out of place. Luke wrote in the opening chapter of the book of Acts that after the risen Christ, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. As Acts chapter 1 records, Judas Iscariot had been replaced by Matthias before the expiration of the forty days described by Luke in Acts chapter 1. Therefore, we see that Paul of Tarsus very well appears to acknowledge the appointment 
of Matthias, which would refute the mistaken notion, which is actually silly, but it's one of the uh, wonderful arguments the Paul bashers have concocted against Paul of Tarsus. Paul's mention of the twelve here, and he certainly can't mean Judas Iscariot, who even the book of Acts has recorded as already being dead, having hanged himself, and, and concurs with Matthew's gospel. Paul very well seems to acknowledge the appointment of Matthias in this passage, which would refute the mistaken notion that many of Paul's accusers attempt to uphold, which is that Paul somehow tried to usurp the appointment of Matthias by calling himself an apostle, which is ridiculous. In reality, Paul's call to apostleship by Christ and the appointment of Matthias to replace Judas by the apostles are unrelated incidents. Apparently, however, the scribes of the Codex Claromontanus attempted to correct Paul hundreds of years later, where that manuscript has 11 rather than 12. Maybe, maybe they were. They were Paul bashers in those days, too. Verse 7. Then he had appeared to, to Jacobus, or Jacob, then to all of the ambassadors, and last of all, just as if from a wound, he had appeared to me also. Of course, Jacob is called James in the King James Version. The name James almost certainly came into the English language from the French word Jambet, or J-A-M-B-E, Jean Bay, perhaps. And the word means leg. And it really referred to the, um, the shank of an animal, as well as a human, but originally, I believe, to an animal. The Hebrew word from which we have the name Jacob literally means heel catcher and metaphorically supplanter. The Similarity of the definitions, well, it's not really similar. A heel catcher is not the same as a leg. The similarity is merely incidental, I believe. The Greek form of the name Jacob is Jacobus, and I do not agree that Jacob should be translated as James. You know, I always um, suspected that perhaps the King James Version translators were being sycophants to the king by translating Jacob as James in the New Testament, but that's probably not true because I have a 1560 printing, a reproduction of the 1560 printing of the Geneva Bible long before King James was um, on the throne, and that also has the medieval equivalent of James, where we see Jacob in the Greek. I still don't agree that James translates Jacob. The word troma, the Greek word troma is a wound, and the word ektroma is literally translated here from a wound, as Paul certainly was 
injuring the young body of Christ. And when Christ appeared to Paul, he asked, Why do you persecute me? However, according to Liddell and Scott, the word ectromal was also used, even though it's not a literal translation, it was also used to describe an untimely birth or even an abortion. Therefore, it is possible that Paul may have been describing his own conversion to Christ poetically as the coming of a child which is born unexpectedly. The word appears three times in the Septuagint, and once in Numbers 12.12, Brenton does have, it is abortion. On the other two occasions, it is an untimely birth. That doesn't mean that Paul may not be using the literal sense of the word in this passage, and we chose to translate it literally. That's why translations need footnotes. Verse 9. Therefore, I am the least of the ambassadors, I who am not fit to be called an ambassador since I had persecuted the assembly of Yahweh. Paul's reference to his persecution of the assembly here is an indication to us of his intention with the word ectroma and another reason why we translated it literally. Here Paul admits not being fit to wear the label of apostle although the fact that he was an apostle is substantiated by the fruits of his ministry. He tells the Corinthians that same thing here in chapter 9 of this epistle, where he said that if to others I am not an apostle, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance of my message is you in the prince, or in the Lord, if you will. The assurance of Paul's message was that the assemblies which he founded had suffered nearly 300 years of persecutions at the hands of Jews and pagans. And they endured. Verse 10. But in the favor of Yahweh, I am that which I am. Paul believed very much in predestination, as all Christians should. And his favor to me has not become empty. Rather, I have toiled more exceedingly than them all. Though not I, but that favor of Yahweh that is with me. Paul is not bragging, but only stating a fact that is fully substantiated in the accounts in the book of Acts, in the historical records left by the early Christian writers, and in the preservation of his memory and his work among the Christian assemblies. The example which Paul offers should be a model for all Christians and those of the white Adamic race who are called to repent and to turn to Christ. Because Paul realized that he would be judged, not for his murder of Christians when he thought he was doing well, but by the grace and mercy of God, in spite of his having persecuted Christians of his own nation, once he had been called to repentance because he obtained that mercy, he made it his purpose 
to work even harder than those who had been with Christ from the beginning. That Paul's letters and memory are preserved to us through 300 years of the persecution of Christians throughout the empire, in spite of the fact that Paul had so many enemies from without and so many from within who had misunderstood his writings from the very beginning. That is by itself a testament to the validity of his ministry and also to the extent of his labors. Beyond any other apostle, Paul was the linchpin connecting the purpose of the Messiah to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. As Paul himself attested in Romans chapter 4, he understood that the nations to which he brought the gospel were indeed the seed of Abraham and the heirs to the promises of Christ. He says the same thing in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. As Paul attested here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he understood that the pagan nations of Europe were indeed. Israel according to the flesh. Few men at Paul's time, few men understood biblical prophecy, biblical history, and also what we now know as classical history to the extent which Paul did and his understanding enabled him to confidently carry the gospel of Christ to the so-called lost sheep of the houses or families of Israel and Judah. As Paul himself attested that same thing as his purpose in all of his epistles. And men who do not have an understanding of ancient history have twisted the meanings of Paul's words from the very beginning. Therefore, the Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle, warning his readers to regard the forbearing salvation of our prince just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all the letters speaking in them concerning these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which those who are unlearned and unstable pervert, as also the rest of the writings, for their own destruction. An examination of both of Peter's epistles reveals that his epistles were originally written to the Christian assemblies of Anatolia, where Paul had previously preached, 
Peter's two epistles survive to us today because they were written to Gentiles, to people of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and not to Judeans, to dispersed Israelites, and not to those of the circumcision. Verse 11, Therefore, whether it is I or those others, in that manner we proclaim, and in that manner you have believed. And Paul's humility is evident in the fact that throughout this epistle, he has given credit to the work of the other apostles, such as Apollos and Barnabas and Peter, all of whom he names in this epistle, just as much as he would claim credit for himself. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed that from of the dead he has been raised, how do some among you say that there is not a restoration of the dead? Then, if there is not a restoration of the dead, and the same word can be translated resurrection. Neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is empty, and empty is your faith. If Yahshua of Nazareth was not Christ, then the scripture lied about a Messiah, as Martin Luther effectively argued, if there was no Messiah before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans prophesied by Daniel, then there could never be a Messiah. If Christ was not that promised Messiah, then there was no Messiah before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. So the Jews are in a corner. Other messianic prophecies, such as that which is found in Malachi chapter 3, also insist, if you actually read them, that the Messiah had to appear while the second temple stood. Therefore, prophecy and the events of history prove beyond doubt that Yahshua of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah of biblical prophecy. However, when Paul wrote this epistle, which with all certainty was no later than 55 AD, Jerusalem and the temple still stood. Therefore, the possibility remained for the appearance of another Messiah if it were not Yahshua, of Nazareth, or Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul's words here must be understood within that historical context. With the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the possibility of another Messiah was forever removed. It had to be Yahshua Christ. If Yahshua Christ, being the promised Messiah, had not overcome death as... as the scriptures promised, then the word of God is useless and there is no basis whatsoever for the Christian faith. 
However, if the resurrection had not occurred, Paul would still not question or blame God, but rather he would only blame the Christian assessment of the word of God. Paul's piety prevents him from blaming God if there was no resurrection, as his next statement in verse 15 reveals. And he says, Then we are also found to be false witnesses of Yahweh, because we have testified concerning Yahweh that he raises the anointed, or the Christ, which he does not raise, if indeed then the dead are not raised. Understanding the Bible within the context of ancient history, one comes to the conclusion that a great number of the prophecies of the Bible have already become true, that history has indeed been fulfilled as the Bible had predicted long before the events happened. Understanding three centuries of early Christian history in the aftermath of the initial spread of the gospel, one realizes that with so many men and women willing to die for the cause of Christ, that the account of the Christ must also be true. It was all presaged by the prophets, and it was all proven by the apostles and so many thousands of Christians who followed after them. Christ himself, while he still walked the earth, had predicted that his followers would themselves be persecuted and killed merely for professing the gospel. The subsequent history proves that his predictions were true. The fact that we found so many papyri in archaeology dating to the 1st and 2nd centuries, so many Christian tombstones dating to the 2nd century, so many works of later Christian writers dating to the 1st and 2nd centuries, we know without a doubt that his predictions were made ahead of time and that his predictions were true. And that is further proof of the truth of the gospel. Those who doubt those who doubt the gospel accounts in the face of so many witnesses do so at their own risk. Paul's argument here must be in response to questions posed to him in the letter which he had received from the assembly of Corinth, which, as we have frequently illustrated, Paul has been replying to since the opening of chapter 7 of this epistle. Therefore, it is manifest that contentions concerning the resurrection from death and the promise of eternal life were already being made among the Christians of Corinth. Verse 16. Indeed, if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. But if Christ has not been raised, 
empty is your faith, and you are still in your errors. And this is another one of those little innuendos of Scripture, which is important to understand in the formation of our worldview. If Joshua Christ, the man, was raised from the dead, then all Israelite Christians should be absolutely confident that they too shall be raised from the dead as the scriptures have also promised. As David said in the 49th Psalm, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. But even if Christ was not raised, Paul nevertheless expresses his confidence in the fact that these Corinthians to whom he writes, are indeed descended from the ancient Israelites, since he tells them that without Christ, they would still bear their sins, since sin is violation of the law, since only the children of Israel had the law, and since sin is only imputed where there is law, as Paul had already attested in Romans chapter 5 then the Corinthians must have been literal descendants of those Israelites who were under the law in order for them to face the prospect of remaining in sin. Paul never would have told, he never could have told, any so-called Gentiles, if we use the word in the sense of non-Israelites, that they would still be in their sins because only Israel was under the law and sin is only imputed where there is law. Rather, Paul's entire mission is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel as Christ himself also attested. If Christ has not been raised, the Corinthians are still Israelites. Void is their faith, but they are still in their sins. And then those that have been dying in Christ have been destroyed because there's no propitiation for sin. If Christ isn't raised, man has no hope in resurrection. If only in this life have we had hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all mankind. Investing all of one's hope in a God who does not fulfill his promises would indeed make Christians the most pitiable of all mankind. The gods of all the pagan nations are idols, but there are no such promises in them, and therefore those worshiping them have nothing to fear from them. Christians walk in fear of their God because they are convinced that his word and his promises are true. Therefore, if the faith in Christ is valid in his life, it must remain just as valid after one passes from this life. Christians should believe with all certainty that God keeps his word and his promises. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are sleeping. Indeed, since death is to a man, restoration of the dead is also 
through a man. Commenting on this, we can only read from Romans chapter 5, where Paul makes a much fuller analogy and says this same thing. Here we will paraphrase the passage from the Christian New Testament so that some correlations may be easier to understand. In other words, we'll use the word for sin rather than fault or error or its more literal meanings, guilt. For this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the society, and by that sin death, and in that manner death is passed to all men on account that all have sinned. And then Paul makes a parenthetical remark and he says, for until the law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh. And the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And not then, by one having sinned, is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation. And that's a reference to Christ, who was condemned on our behalf. As Paul says elsewhere in his epistles, cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. He made himself a curse for our behalf. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if, in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving in life they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, in this manner, then through one decision of judgment for all men, is for a judgment of life. The words of Paul of Tarsus. Not only will all Israel be saved, the entire Adamic race has eternal life. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man the many were set down as sinners, in this manner then, through the obedience of one, the many will be established as righteous. Moreover, Law entered in addition that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, favor exceeded beyond measure. That just as sin reigned in death, so then, favor shall reign through justice for life eternal through Yahshua Christ our Prince. And here in his next verse, Paul corroborates in one statement what he had taught in Romans chapter 5, just as in Adam all die, then in that manner, in Christ, all shall be produced alive. 
There are no exceptions. As the wisdom of Solomon says in its second chapter, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world, and they that hold of his side do find it. With those words in mind, we should also consider what the Apostle John had said in the third chapter of his first epistle, from verse 8, from the Christian New Testament, because the King James mistreats one certain Greek verb to a great extent in the first epistle of John. He who is creating sin is from the devil, since the devil sins from the beginning. For this the Son of God has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the devil. If Yahweh is to do away with the works of the devil through Yahshua Christ, then it must be that just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive. If one descendant of the Adamic man misses the resurrection, then the works of the devil are not done away with. The scriptures are a lie, and the will of the devil prevails over the will of God. However, Yahweh God shall indeed prevail, and not only shall all Israel be saved, as it is written, and as Paul himself had professed in Romans chapter 11, but the entire Adamic race shall ultimately have a part in the resurrection. And it will be a resurrection to life. However, while the children of Israel are promised mercy and justification in judgment, as the words of the prophet Isaiah attest that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel not only be saved, all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory, Isaiah 45:25. Evidently, it may not be so for all of those who were resurrected, as Christ attests in John chapter 5. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The children of Israel have a promise of justification as well as eternal life. The rest of the Adamic race does not necessarily share in the same promise of justification. In any event, however, Christ shall indeed destroy the works of the devil, and the creation of God shall indeed be restored to his original plan, because God created the Adamic man to be immortal. And the wisdom of Solomon, certainly, which used to be in the Bible, certainly deserves to stay there.
except that it makes the Jews feel uncomfortable when they read large parts of it. Verse 23, but each in his own order, the first fruit, Christ, then those of the anointed at his arrival, then the consummation, when he should hand over the kingdom to Yahweh, who is also the Father, when he shall abolish all rule and all license and all power. First, the phrase tothio kahipatri. Here is a Greek hendiadis, which is two separate nouns connected with a conjunction and accompanied by a single article. It's a grammatical construction in Greek, which indicates that both nouns, God and Father, describe the same entity. The hendiadis was a feature of the Greek grammar, which conveniently accommodates the Hebrew parallelism. The parallelism is a device of Hebrew grammar whereby the same entity is described in different ways using consecutive words or phrases. I bring this up now because we will see more such instances with God and Yahshua later in Paul's epistles. The Greek word exousia, Strong's number 1849, is power or authority or license. Our endeavor was to distinguish it here from both arche, which is rule, and a synonym of exousia, the Greek word dunamis, which is power here at the end of this verse. While the divine will of Yahweh God is that he rule over men. It is clear in Scripture that within Yahweh's permissive will, men are given a license to serve as rulers. This is evident in Daniel chapter 4, where speaking of God, the prophet says that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will, even to Satan, the devil, the Jews. The will of Yahweh God is that he rule as king over the children of Israel. When the ancient children of Israel saw an earthly king, they were demonstrating their rejection of God as their king. Therefore, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8 from verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us, to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. From the Exodus up until this very time, in 1 Samuel 8, 
There was a system of Levites and judges who settled disputes among the children of Israel as it became necessary. But those Levites and judges did not attempt to make their own law. Rather, they judged according to the law of Yahweh, and Yahweh was their king. The model of government during the period of the judges was the model which Yahweh himself had ordained for the children of Israel. The later kingdom, even the throne of David, and the bureaucratic state which resulted from it, only came about because the children of Israel rejected Yahweh as king and demanded a visible state and an earthly king after the manner of the other nations. Therefore, the plan of Yahweh God, which worked within the greater plan that he had for our race, was to manifest himself as a son of David and as the ultimate heir to David's throne so that he would once again be the king of Israel in spite of the sins of Israel. This is only one facet of God's ongoing relationship with Israel, which was fulfilled in Christ. So in the words of the prophets, David became a type for the Messiah. And we read in Hosea chapter 3, along with the warnings that the children of Israel would be taken into captivity. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim, the symbols of their national unity. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek Yahweh their God, and David their king, and shall fear Yahweh and his goodness in the later days. Likewise, we read in Hosea chapter 13, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. That's the end result of all of Adamic history is that Yahweh God is once again our king. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou said, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. By continuing to place their hope in earthly rulers, the children of Israel only perpetuate their sin. We read in Revelation chapter 17 of those who rule with the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he says unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, those nations of Israel, they are the whore, the whore of the revelation of the children of Israel, are peoples and multitudes of nations and tongues. 
and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, those kings which Israel allows to rule over her, those earthly kings which Israel follows, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. This is where we are right now in history, and we're being devoured by the beast and stripped bare and naked. The word of God in this respect is that the children of Israel turn to him and seek him as their king, thereby rejecting the ancient sin of their ancestors who demanded an earthly king. The promised reunion of the children of Israel with Yahweh their God is in the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the returning Messiah is portrayed as a conquering king. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Therefore, Christians must not put their hopes in an earthly king or in any earthly politician. Rather, Christians should lead the world to the fires of hell and put their hope in Christ their God. As Paul attests here, ultimately, all of the power, the license to power, and the rule of men shall be abolished in Christ. Ultimately, Yahweh God and his law alone shall rule over the lives of men. Therefore, Christians should look forward to that day now. But Christians should never seek to rule over one another in this life. Men place heavy burdens on one another However, Christ is certainly true, where he says in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Matthew that all things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to, whom, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, All ye that labor and are heavy laden with the burdens of men, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, lawyers. You bind heavy burdens and lay them upon men and lift not one finger 
to move them yourself. Come unto me, O ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is the perfect place to leave off here in our presentation of 1 Corinthians. So that we have opportunity to once again summarize some of the things Paul says here when we present the remaining portions of this chapter. For now, this very topic will be a further discussion tomorrow when we have Brother Ryan here to present Walking the Walk, Part 4, Bible or Bureaucracy. That's the choice Christians have. Christians should choose the way of God in this life and not make excuses. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.